0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gold Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church.
1: I don't know, there's uh, the, the glory of God, the, 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 the presence of God, the power of God. And I think that that's not by accident, because today's message comes from Judges chapter 17, and if you're a guest with us today, thank you so much for being here. What I've been doing the last couple of weeks, and I'll do the next couple of weeks, is I've been um, re-preaching sermons that are classic sermons of old, so some that were preached 100 years ago, some that were preached 20 years ago, and, and the reason for this is I want to... Two reasons. One, I figure if the sermon's good enough to preach one time, it should be good enough to preach more than once, Right? and i think also that that we should be exposed to some of the preaching of the past because the bible teaches that that preaching is is powerful when god is in it and when it's the word of god that's being preached and so i'm hoping that this will instill in you a desire to go search out some of, the, some of the men and, and, and women of God of the past and let them influence our life today. Sometimes we, we forget that, that there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, this message has reminded me of this perhaps as much as anything else in that I have thought these thoughts before, but I don't know that I've ever put them all in one specific place. And um, so this is a guy named Paris Reedhead. I know very little about him. He was born in 1919. He died, um, I believe, in 91. He was a a missionary, and he ran a, a mission organization. And uh, so he, as a result, he talked to uh, uh, pastors and leaders a bunch. And And this message is just one of those that when he preached it, I'm not sure he realized the... Cause, cause I haven't been able to verify it, but what I'm told is that this was a message that was uh, somewhat spontaneous. But it was one of those that, that the more people that hear it, the more they realize he is right. So without any further ado, Judges chapter 17. When's the last time you heard a sermon out of Judges, right? Judges chapter 17, verses 1 and following, and then we'll look into chapter 18 for a few verses. Judges 17, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver. Uh, I took it. And then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son. To make an image overlaid with silver, I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put into Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left his town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. And so the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, chapter eighteen, one. In those days Israel had no king, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking the place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtoah, To spy out the land and explore it. And these men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. So they entered the hill country and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. And when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him. And he said, he has hired me and I am his priest. Take note of that. Then they said to him, "'Please inquire of God and learn whether our journey will be successful.' The priest answered them, "'Go in peace, your journey has the Lord's approval.' And so the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else.' And when they returned to Zorah and Eshtal, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? And they answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. And when you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing, whatever. Skip on down to 14. Then the five men who had spied out the land said to their fellow Danites, "...do you know that one of those houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do." So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate... And the five men who spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and his six hundred armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. And when the five men went to Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, "'What are you doing?' And they answered him, "'Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household?' The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them. They turned away and they left. So this story is about a time when there were, when there were, uh, there was no king in Israel. Because there were no king, there was no king. Everybody what seemed right to himself. Everybody just did what, what, what seemed to be the right thing to do. And how they decided what was right was really based on how they felt and what they saw worked. And so in this story, we have a, a, uh, we have a picture of how many of us live our lives. And, and there's so many different levels of this. One is Micah. Micah was living in a place where he did not have access to the, uh, the temple. You know, so he couldn't get to Jerusalem because the Amorites owned the place. Now, just to be, to, to be sure, the Israelites were told to drive out everyone from the land. But they didn't. They let some of the Amorites stay. And as a result, it came back to bite them. It bit them in that they no longer could get to the temple. And so Micah said, I'll fix this. Since I cannot get to the temple to worship, I will build my own temple. And so he took some silver that he had, he had taken from his mom, he gave it back to his mom. His mom said, "This is good. They took 200 shekels, and they, they built an idol. And so, so essentially Michael, Micah built his own church and installed excuse me, one of his sons as priest, and, and he looked at this church and he said, "You know, I've got everything I need, but, but you know, my neighbors have some different gods. I, I wonder if I shouldn't just maybe hedge my bets a little bit." And put some of their gods in my temple as well. Just in case my temple is not enough. Just in case my God is not enough. I'll just make sure that I'm not forgetting anything. And so he had a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. He mixed it all together. And this is what he said. This is good. Maybe God will bless me because he can see that I'm trying to include him in my life. Micah was doing what you and I seem to do all the time. And that is... We allow God just enough space to, 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 to help us, but we don't really want Him to wreck things. We allow Him to have enough control of our lives so that, so that we, we, we're, we're on His good side, but we're not going to let Him have everything because He might do something we don't want. And in fact, we don't just have God in there, but we have all these other things in there, and our goal is to live a good, long, happy life. So that was Micah. The Levite was another story. This young man... "...had everything he needed." Because as a Levite, the Old Testament law said that... Now, you got to understand, there were 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were a tribe that were a priestly tribe. And so, they were not to go get jobs and do the work in the field. They were to be the priest. And their payment, their subsistence came from the other 11 tribes... So they were to be paid by, by part of what the other tribes gave to the Lord. Now, this young Levite had it, had it made, or at least he was taken care of. We don't know to what degree, but he should have had enough. But he got itchy feet, right? He started walking. He said, you know, maybe I can do better for myself. Maybe I can go make a way somewhere else. Now, he actually wasn't a Levite by, uh, justly. He, he was a Levite by birth. His, there was some intermarriage, but he was still a Levite why he was living in Bethlehem in Judah. And so he started walking around and he came to Micah's house looking for a place to stay. And when Micah found that he was a priest, Micah said, oh, how good is this? The Lord must have sent you. I don't need my son as a priest. I have a real priest. And so I tell you what I'll do. If you will be my priest, I will give you 10 shekels and I will give you food and I'll give you a suit of clothes. Now that's where the title 10 shekels and a shirt came from. This Levite sold his services for 10 shekels and a shirt. That's how much he thought his life or his ministry, his service to God was worth. And so everything was good. He had his temple. He did his duty. This one whole household was, was, uh, was, was taken care of by their personal priest. But then the uh, Danites started come along. And the Danites did not have a land of their own, and so the spies from the Danites were looking, who can we attack? Whose land can we get? Now, the reason that they were looking for land was because they were disobedient to God in the first place. Does it not ever cease to amaze us how we oftentimes try to, try to uh, uh, usurp God's authority and how we try to take God's plan and tweak it and make it just a little better? Does it ever, does it ever occur to you and me that we cannot make God's plan any better? His plan is as good as it's ever going to get. And so that's where they are. They, they, they come to, to Micah's house, the spies do, and they hear this voice and they go, Ah, oh, that sounds like the young Levite. So they say, What are you doing here? Will you pray for us? And so what happens is the Levite directs them of where they can get their own land. So the spies go back and tell their, their people and they march through. And so 600 men were at the gate of Micah's house. And they said, look, there's a temple here. Let's just go and take the temple with us. And while we're taking the temple, let's let's take the priest as well. And here was the offer they made to the priest. They said, son, would you rather stay a priest of a family or would you like to be a priest of a clan, of a whole tribe? And he thought it over and he said, you know, I could move up in the world just a little bit. And so he sold his services no longer to a family, but now to a clan or to a tribe. And this picture is the picture of so many who say yes to God, but they say yes to God, and they keep moving up the ladder with no real thought of what pleases God. But hey, how is this going to do for me and for my ministry? And I'm sad to say there are too many preachers that exist. I'm not going to call out names. That would be unfair, and that would be judgmental on my part. But I'm saying there is a sense to where in preacher land, the bigger church is the preferred church. The, 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 the place with, with more recognition, the place with more influence, the place with more power. Don't hear what I'm not saying. When God calls, God calls. He sometimes calls to a smaller place, he sometimes calls to a bigger place. That's God's deal. I'm talking about the heart of man. I'm talking about the human heart that says, you know what? I deserve more than this. I, I deserve, I'm a good enough preacher, I need, I should be preaching to a hundreds. To, to, to thousands, not to hundreds, and so it 's it 's this idea that that you just want to move up the ladder for the sake of the ladder don 't hear what i 'm not saying. God sometimes does move you to a different place, and it sometimes is a bigger place, better pay whatever sometimes God moves you to a smaller place, and sometimes God moves you to a bigger place with more problems so so don 't don 't judge every preacher by what i 'm saying i 'm simply saying there is a tendency or there is, excuse me, there is a temptation for the heart to seek after self rather than the glory and the will of God, which actually brings us to why this text is so important. Because we oftentimes have relegated our faith to To an expedient religion, a utilitarian Christianity, to a useful God. In other words, God is in the mix because, well, we want to hedge our bets. We don't want to to live life without God, so we'll put Him in there. But God is there to make my life better. God is there for how I can succeed. God is there because I don't want to be lonely. God is there because I don't want to go to hell. God is there because, because He has a lot to offer And so our life is lived with God as a part of it because of what we feel we can get from Him rather than because God is worthy. It's very pragmatic, I would say. You know what pragmatism is, right? If it works, it must be right. If it works, it must be true. If it works, it must be good. How much of your faith is pragmatic? But let's go even deeper. How much of your faith is actually humanism rather than Christianity. Because I'm afraid that sometimes we don't know the difference. I'm afraid that sometimes we call good or we call evil good and we call good evil. It, when it comes to, to um, um, pragmatism and if it works, it must be good or if it's, if it's... Here's how that works. If it's growing, it must be of God. If people are happy... It must be of God. If it it looks good, it must be of God. But do you know how many times in Scripture our own judgment of works or don't works uh, is is in violation of what the Scripture actually teaches? Let's just think of some men of God, right? Let's look at Noah. Now, Noah was a heck of a a boat builder. I mean, he he built one heck of a boat, right? He was an awesome builder. He was not a good preacher. His, His real profession was preaching, you know. The boat was just, was just a way that he got to preach, but he was a preacher of righteousness day in and day out. What was his message? Repent, because God is going to judge. Why did God say for him to preach? Because the Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 6 that the only inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And so as a result, Noah found grace in God's eyes. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so he said to Noah, Noah, build a boat. And while you're building a boat, preach that I'm going to judge the world one day. And hopefully somebody will repent. He was a horrible preacher. You know how many he was con- were converted? Seven. His own family. Yeah, outside of his family, none. So if we were paying him to preach, we would have stopped paying him a long time before he ever... Why? Because our, by our standards, just wasn't working. What about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a preacher who was a good preacher, but he sure didn't convince anybody. His, preach, his preaching constantly got him in trouble with the ministerial associations. It constantly got him in trouble with the city leaders. It constantly got him kicked out of places. All of his preaching, although faithful to God, was a horrible failure in the eyes of man. So again, we judge based on what is good and what is not good based on does it work, does it grow. But God's standard is different. Okay, because we're very pragmatic. What about Jesus Himself? Truthfully, you wouldn't want Jesus to be a preacher. Why? Because even though He could give you a lot of food out of nothing, even though He could heal some sick and raise some dead, at the end of the day, He only had a couple hundred that were willing to follow Him. You think about it. There were very few disciples when Jesus was crucified. Very few. This is the man sent by God, sent from God, who's God with us. He, he did all of these things and the people looked and said, oh, that's nice. But they rejected his preaching. They rejected his message. So Jesus, by the world's standards, could be called a failure. Now, we know different. But according to those standards, not so good. But see, pragmatism is this idea that you, that you got to do what works. And if it works, it must be from God. And that is not always consistent with, gen, with genuine biblical Christianity. Oftentimes, God says what doesn't seem like it's going to work is actually what is going to work. And what seems like it's going to work... Is not the way at all. And if you go back and look at this story in Micah, or excuse me, in Judges, you'll find that exact thought, that exact teaching. He thought, well, since I can't go there, I'll just bring the temple here. Since I don't have a priest that I can call on, I'll just make my son my priest. Since I have, have uh, some, the ephod and some things of God, but, but my other neighbors have some others, I'll just bring those in. It was just. It was all utilitarian. You know, utilitarian is right. It's it, it, it's it's purposeful. It's it's again. If it works, it it must be right. So the root of this, though, for us particularly in our current culture, comes way back in the 1850s. You remember back then? No. But if you studied history at all, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you studied church history at all, you know what I'm talking about. Back in the mid 1800s, there was an attack against biblical faith. Here's something you need to remember God is always at work, but when he is at work the most, uh, when he is most strongly at work, the enemy ramps up his own efforts and combats that through lies and deceit and distruths. Here's what happened. There was a great revival in the 1800s in America. Charles Finney was one of the preachers. There were people being saved by the hundreds and thousands. The gospel was moving forth. And the enemy got afraid. And he said, you know, I've got to stop this. So I'm going I'm to introduce some, some credibility issues. And so you had theologians rise up. And you had philosophers rise up who began to question whether or not we really could believe the Bible. They called this higher criticism and the higher criticism asked questions like who is the real jesus did jesus really do miracles was there was there really a resurrection all of these things began to be called into question by people who were who appeared really really smart and then and as they did that they began to gradually erode the scripture away and people started to turn away from what they had always known to be true. In fact, Voltaire, you've heard that name before, right? He is famous for saying, the Bible will soon be a relic only found in museums and on back shelves. I got to tell you, he was dead wrong. Another guy by the name of Nietzsche was around then. And Nietzsche had this idea that God was dead. We didn't need God anymore. Nietzsche believed in humanism just as well, just like uh, all these others. They, they, They shifted the focus from God and they said, you know what? The chief end of man, don't miss this part. The chief end of man is happiness. I exist to be happy. The reason God made me was to be happy. And so everything in my life should be built around me being what? Happy. Now, I hope hope some triggers are going off in your mind. I hope you're thinking this through, and I hope you're actually starting to challenge what you yourself do and how much of what you do is about making you happy. That's the root of sin. I sin against God because I want happiness, because I think what I can do against God will make me happier than obeying God. If we really get third grade level, that's what it's all about. So you have, you have these philosophers attacking the, the Scripture. You have these uh, philosophers bringing up new ideas of, of humanism. How do, I, how, am I, how do I become happy? Nietzsche said, well, happiness comes through power. You know what came out of Nietzsche? Hitler. Hitler founded his beliefs and his ideas largely on, on Nietzsche's ideas of power. And he convinced a whole generation and a whole world that he was right. Well, then shortly after that, they said, no, no, it's not power. True happiness is found in sensual pleasures. This came out of France and other places. It migrated to the U.S. And we became a nation where pleasures were the chief end of man because happiness comes from pleasure. Now, let's just think, fast forward here. In our nation's history, how much of that is true? That what we do is a direct result of trying to find sensual pleasure. Today, in the United States of America, that is one of the greatest, highest um, uh, values that we hold. We would never say that out loud, but pleasure is what we live for. I thank you, sir. Thank, you know what? You should have been here last week. Yeah. Because you're doing what I told them to do last week. <laughs> Come on. So, so this, this idea that, that, that I'm to be happy. I, I can get happiness by power. I can get happiness by pleasure. And, and then the, the church said, well, wait a minute. We, uh, we, we can't miss out on this. So, so here's what we'll do. We will, we will redefine how we do church and how we read the Scripture based on what God does for us. And there were two streams that came out of this. One was the stream of liberalism. The other stream was fundamentalism. Now, this is important for you to know the history of how we got here. So the liberalism said, well, we can't really believe the Bible. But there are some good teachings in there to help you have a better life. And so what we're going to do as the church is, we're going to mold the church around helping people be good people. Because good people just have better lives. And as uh, Paris Reed had said, we're going to help you put... We we might not be able to help you in eternity, but we can put springs on your wagon and make your, your ride more comfortable. And if you look today, there are denominations whose entire focus is about how good people can be. And it rejects largely the glory of God and His holiness and all that He is. There are denominations today that are the, the, the death nail is in the coffin because they believed in this time that man was the center of the message. But it's worse. Because the fundamentals did the same thing. They just kept the terms. The fundamentalists said, Look, I still believe in Scripture. I still believe Jesus is Lord. I still believe in salvation. I still believe that that, that Jesus died, buried, and rose again. But but we got to make it a little more palatable. And the focus came from the focus of preaching went from the holiness of God and his worthiness of worship to the the benefits of man if they would give their lives to God. So Jesus, God, became a means to an end, not the end. And this is the question I want to ask you. This is a hard question. This is a, this is a brutally honest question. But is your faith the means or is your faith the end? Do you serve Jesus because what ser- because of what serving Jesus gets you or do you serve Jesus because Jesus is worthy regardless of what it gets you? The reason we say no to God is because we're serving Jesus for us, not for him. The reason we say no, Lord, I'm not willing to go there is because we don't understand that he deserves our worship. And our worship is obedience, and so if, if, if we worship Him, we say, of course I'll go there. I don't care what it costs. I don't care where it takes me. My yes is on the table. I don't need you to tell me where to go, and I don't need you to tell me how you're going to pay for it. Lord, if you say go, I'm going. That's all it takes. That's all I need. But you see, our faith has become, it's, it's, for too many believers, it's it's about not going to hell when we die. Think of how you were led to Christ. How many of you heard this, this 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 story? How would you like to not go to hell when you die? How would you like to be rescued from hell? How would you like to have hope in life? How would you like to have joy? How would you like to have peace? How would you like to have goodness? How would you like to, how would you, how would you, how would you? Salvation is not about you or me. Salvation is about God. It's not about rescuing you from hell. It's about giving God what He deserves. Now, don't misunderstand me. All of those things are a byproduct of worshiping God. So you get eternity. You you get hope. You get peace. Those things are not wrong. It's just those aren't the motivation. When those things are the motivation, Jesus is a means to an end. We should worship Christ Jesus, whether he sends us to hell or not, because he is worthy. We should say, Lord, I don't care what you do with me in the end. I worship you because you are king. That's what nations do. That's what people do in a nation that has a king. I give you honor because you're king. Because that's that's the honor you deserve. That's the honor you deserve. This even affects our our, our missions. I was guilty of this. So I'm I'm telling you something that I've had to wrestle through, and, and, and I still wrestle with it, and I hope I'm better on it now than I was, but I used to do missions so that I could take the gospel to a place where they haven't heard of Jesus and give the poor people a chance to hear the gospel so they won't go to hell. Essentially, I was trying to improve upon God's justice thinking that somehow by me going, I was going to do God a favor and take His message to a place where if they just heard it, they would have a chance to receive it because it would be unfair for God to send them to hell if they haven't heard the gospel. Listen, people don't go to hell because they don't hear the gospel. People go to hell because they deserve it. Because they are monsters of iniquity, as George Whitfield says. Because their hearts are crusty and and, and broken. Because we offend God at every turn in our own flesh. We have forgotten that God in His grace and His mercy offers forgiveness and offers salvation. He has no obligation to do so. God does not have to save you. He chooses to run after you. He doesn't have to save anyone all men are without excuse, the Bible says in Romans. We can see by what was made that there clearly is a God. And it's foolishness in my heart to think that I'm going to go give these people an opportunity because if they only have the opportunity, no, it's not about them. It's about the glory of God. As Paris Reedhead puts it, he went to Africa as a missionary, had that same exact conversation with God, and God said to him in so many words, I love them more than you do. You think you've come to rescue them from hell? No. You've come because I deserve their worship. It's about what God deserves. And we might say, well, that's just, that's not right of God. I mean, it's. As owner? As creator? Well, let me ask you this. Do you want the government to come live in your house? Like, would you like Gulf Breeze to say, you know what? We're going to use your house uh, to house some people that come. Okay, so, so we're... No, why? Not, not that Gulf Breeze would do that. Why? In fact, that's in our constitution that, that, that the government cannot just come into your house and live there, Right? That's that's part of our founding. Why? Because your house is yours. You control it. You own it. You say who comes in and who goes out, right? So is nobody upset with that? How dare you try to tell people they can't just come in your house? Who do you think you are? I mean, really? You don't have the right... Oh, you do. Because the title of the house is yours. And see, this is the case with the universe. Why does God deserve worship? Because it's His. Everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The, word, the stars worship God. The chipmunks worship God. One of my favorite things about hunting. I love it. is, is, is I walk out in the dark and I'll get up and sit in a tree... And everything will be just calm and there's not a sound. Actually, the crickets are beep, 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 beep. The crickets are cricketing. And then, and then everything goes silent. And it's almost like, here's what it's like. You know, you go to an orchestra and, and everybody's beep, 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 beep. You know, they're, they're tuning and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the maestro walks out and stepped on, steps on stage and everybody on stage goes, shh, he's here. And the maestro goes, And and that's that's what happens in nature. It's the most amazing thing ever. Everything goes silent, then all at once it just explodes. You know what I think they're saying? I think they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our God reigns. I think they're proclaiming with the top of their little cricket mouths and their little robin brains, they're going, Jesus is Lord. The Bible says that if you don't praise Him, the rocks and the stones will cry out. So why wouldn't the birds and, the, and all the other things do it too, right? And so we come to this place where we have to confront our own hearts. And we have to ask, why do we do it? Why are you here today? Are you here because it's Sunday and it's what you do? Or are you here today because Jesus is worth it? Are you here today, because not because you want to get something from God, but you want to give something to God? There is a difference. Listen, if we would shift our thinking and start doing everything that we do, Lord, I'm giving this to you because it's you. Lord, I'm I'm, I'm giving because you are worth it. Lord, I'm singing because you are worth it. Lord, I'm looking at the scripture because this tells me of who you are, and you are worth it. Lord, I'm going to talk about Jesus and tell your story because you are worth it. Lord, you you deserve everything I could give you. Don't misunderstand me. When we give to God His worth like that, God blesses us. I, I was I was walking out of the woods yesterday. I, actually, I'll be, I'll be honest. I was in the tree and I just, I just lift my hands. I'm like, I hope the deer don't see me, but. I mean, that's why I didn't see any deer yesterday. I mean, I'm, 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 just, I'm just worshiping him because I'm going, Lord, you're good. You're worth it. Lord, look at this. But it's not just when things are good. It's when you're in chains in a prison cell and you're unfairly accused. I will praise the Lord no matter what tomorrow brings but what it has in store. I will praise the Lord. It's this idea that doesn't matter. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't care what you do to my body. I don't care what you do to my money. I don't care if you call me to Zimbabwe. I don't care if you put me at a small little country church. I don't care if you give me a radio show. I don't care if I have a name. All I care about Jesus is that you get all my glory. That's all that matters. And I tell you, a humanistic mind cannot receive this message. Because it's fighting against the me in my face. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, right? And he said, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I can't, I can't I can't see this. And the Bible said that a seraphim took him and lifted him up, stuck a coal to his lips and said, Look, I have made you clean. This is the God we serve. (sighs) So, is God to you a utilitarian God? Is your Christianity convenient, part of the mix, Like Micah, just want to hedge your bets, make sure that you don't miss something. Is God useful to you? Or is He everything? Lordship is about Jesus being Lord. Now, I'm not going to say it's easy, and I'm not going to say that you can can just do this just by a switch of a flip. In fact I I suspect that there's a there's a moment in time where this this hits you and you 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 repent from from thinking it's about you and me and then and then from that point on we 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 start to model our lives after it but but living this way and thinking this way changes everything There were two Moravians two young Moravians Moravians uh at the time were very faithful to God, they loved God, they, they tried to live their life for Him. These two young Moravians heard of a slave owner who had an island in the West Indies. And the island had 3,000 or so slaves that had been bought for this slave owner. The slave owner was a devout atheist and had declared publicly, no missionary and no preacher will ever step foot on my island. Nobody will come and tell these slaves about Jesus." These two young Moravians felt the call of God to go to that island. And the only way that they could make that happen was to sell themselves to the slave owner. So these two young men of 20 so years old, they went to the slave owner and said, we want to sell ourselves to a lifetime of service to you. And I don't know how the conversation went, but it ended by him paying a small sum of money for them to become owned for the rest of their lives. Understand the gravity of this. These two young men at 20 years old sold themselves for a lifetime of physical labor on an island far from their home with no money except for the money they were paid, but they had to use that money for passage to get to the island. They gave literally everything. And their family and their friends were questioning why, I don't understand why, why, why? And that question lingered even as the ship was sailing out of port. And when it was far enough to where they could just barely be heard, the report has been, has been passed down that the two young men grabbed arms and one of them lifted up his hand and yelled to his family, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering." was the motivation. That the slain Lamb of God deserved to be worshipped on that island. They weren't going so that the islanders could be rescued from hell. They were going because Jesus said that His name is to be made great in every corner of the earth. And you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world of the earth. Right? Why? So that worship from there would be given to God. The same thing was said about um, Jim Elliot and the five men who were brutally massacred in Ecuador by the Onca Indians. You know this story. Jim Elliot and, and his friends decided that they would, they would share the gospel to a cannibalistic, bru- uh, I think they're cannibalistic, brutalistic, uh, 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 just, just wicked tribe in the jungle. And their plan was to bring the message of the gospel there. And very shortly after they made contact, they were brutally murdered. And the people back in the States before they went said, you guys are the top of your class. They were at Wheaton College. You're the top of your class. You should be pastoring large churches. You should be leading nations. Why would you give your life for something as small as a no-name tribe in the jungle of Ecuador? What these detractors did not know is that their death sparked a movement of missions that has been unparalleled. Since that time. May the slain lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. My friends, may I present to you that your life offered to him is the reward of his suffering. Will you open your. your um, take out your bulletin, if you will, and will you look at the uh, live and share verse? Can we put that up here? Will you say this with me? It's Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus suffered through hell. Therefore, he is worthy of our praise. Terry will you come on up here? This is my friend Terry who was caught in traffic. Uh Terry came to faith in Jesus not too long ago. And uh, I heard his story and uh it impacted me and I said, "You know what? I'd like for I'd like for you to hear this story." So, can you take, I don't know, 5 minutes or so and share your story?
0: 5 minutes? <laughs> oh gosh, that's that's really loud. <laughs> All right, I apologize. I got a deep voice and I apologize for being late. Um so, as you said, my name is Terry, and I am from Miami, Florida. And Miami, one thing about Miami, it is one less than 1% Christian. And I grew up in that kind of environment. The only form of religion I knew as a child was Jehovah's Witness, and that's because my grandmother was you know, Jehovah's Witness. But nothing about that ever sparked my interest about religion. I was sitting on her Bible studies, could care less. You know, I was presented the gospel. I could care less. You know, and I just grew up in the world because the world just had that strong hold on me. But it wasn't until I got to college. When I got to college, I came up here with, she's my ex now, but at the time she was my girlfriend. First year, it was great. You know, just living in the world. And there are some things that I've done that I kind of regret now. But you know what? I've learned my lesson from it and I've grown through it. And that made me a stronger person. So, our second year of college, we broke up, and that spit me. That sent me into such a whirlwind of depression and sorrow that I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what my purpose was. I didn't know if I could live anymore. Like I wasn't suicidal, but if I were just got hit by a bus, I I could care less. You know, I was just that heartbroken, that destruct. So my junior year comes around, and I meet this friend. I meet my roommate, and he's my friend now. His name is Eric. And he tells me, he was like, hey, I'm a part of this organization called BCM. And BCM is known as Baptist Collegiate Ministries. He was like, yo, we're having a wild and crazy game night. I would like you to come. I was like, I ain't got nothing else to do. Sure, I'll go. And I'm so glad I went because the people that, those are some of the great people that I can call friends now. Like, Like, lifelong friends, they presented me the gospel, but I was still at that eager stage of, like, I wanted to do me. I was like, okay, I could care less. But it wasn't until one event is our beach retreat, and we go down to Panama City Beach, and we go there for the weekend. And let me tell you about this event. There is a time that we go out to the beach at night, and we just pray. Keep in mind, I wasn't Christian. I didn't know how to pray at all. So I just did my best. I said, Lord, just look after my family, you know, protect me and protect them. A very simple prayer. And I started to feel my heartbeat go slower and slower and slower and then pause. I thought I was dead. Like, I'm looking around. I'm panicking. I don't know what happened. And at that moment, I knew the Lord had put his hand on my heart, and he had a hold of me and he's like, I will protect you. And from that moment, I was like, Lord, you're my savior. On that sandy beach, Lord, you're my savior. I'm looking out at the waves, the moon is coming down on me, me only. Lord, you're my savior. And from then I just dove in head first. I learned how to become a spiritual leader. I learned how to become a biblical man of Christ. I learned what it means to be a follower of Christ. I'm learning, I learned what it is to be a disciple and how to disciple others. I learned so much through that BCM organization that it made me the man that I am now. And I am so grateful for that moment. I am so grateful for that person and all those people who have impacted my life so that I can impact somebody else's life and help lead them to Christ. And that's my story.
1: I wanted you to hear that because did you notice how he came to faith in Christ? God drew him, but he used a friend and he used a group. You know I'm not sure if the friend thought of it this way, but what if his thinking was, you know what'm going I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with my friend Terry the story of Jesus because Jesus deserves his worship. that'll help Terry a lot, but but really, Jesus died. To buy his salvation. He paid for it. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he knows about that. This morning, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as your Lord and as your Savior? The Bible tells us that our hearts are wicked. We don't hear that out, you know, we don't hear that on the news, but but you know as well as I do That our hearts are wicked. That we deserve death. For God to be fair, we would all be condemned. But in His great mercy and love, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus bought your forgiveness. And he's the only one worthy to do so. In this moment, I'm asking you to repent of sin. Which essentially is agreeing with God that you need forgiveness. Jesus, I recognize that I am a monster of iniquity. There's no way to candy coat that. If you come to God and say, God, I'm kind of bad. Then you really don't understand the own condition of your heart. But when we say to God, God, I am a monster of iniquity. Jesus' words to us are, I will save you. I've already paid the price. Come on in. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? If today needs to be your day of salvation, if you would recognize your own sin before God, and confess that to him. He will rescue you. Will you do that now, whether you're young or old? This morning if you realize that your own heart has been has been using a using God for what he gets for you, not for who he is. Would you take this moment to confess that to him? And would you ask God to change your heart? to help you realize that he is worthy. Father in heaven in this moment, let it be a holy moment. Father help us to recognize your goodness. God help us to recognize your holiness. Father help us to recognize that you are an all-powerful mighty king and yet you are also a father. Father, our minds cannot comprehend that our 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 brains just can't hold the truth of how, how, how radical that is. But Father, we try by childlike faith. And we trust you.